You're listening to a Sunday morning message by Authentic Church. Thank you for inviting me back, and it's great to see you in a new venue. And uh, I just love what you're doing here. Yeah, I really do, because I really believe you are part of something that God is doing, um, and that's in a much bigger context. And that really sort of taps into what I want to talk to you about this morning, because I really do believe that God has put something on my on my heart, and it comes out of my own journey, my own struggles, in a sense. Um, and um, it, it's my own view on what some might see as a fairly difficult subject. Um, so you don't have to agree, you, we can disagree, um, but I've been sitting on this message for a couple of months or so, I think, and uh, I think it is for you, but I think it, it's sort of got a much wider context as well. And as I say, you are involved in something that is much, much bigger than yourselves as well, something that I believe that God is actually doing with his church. Now, there are loads of theories out there concerning the return of Jesus. Um, some feel it's imminent, some feel it's still a way off yet, and it's not my intention to promote any particular theory, but what I can say is it will be soon. Jesus is coming back soon. And I can say that with all authority because that's what Scripture says. It says it many times in many different ways. And even Jesus says, it will be soon. Have we got the... Okay, the slide I was looking for was the one out of Revelation where it says, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And other versions use the word quickly. I'm coming Quickly. So how can Jesus say that he's actually coming quickly or coming soon when it's been 2,000 years since the ascension? It doesn't really seem very soon, does it? But listen to what he said at the time of the ascension. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very sight, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And I think now we, that's one. Yeah, yeah we, we got the right one. Um, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside the men of Galilee. They said, why do you stand here looking into this, the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. I'll really put it in red. He will come back back. That is definite. He is coming back. And it's something that um, I think we've sort of neglected to speak on for a while, because it did seem to be a long time coming. And I think, you know, I've come across Christians who didn't even know that there was the promise that he was coming back, which does surprise me. But, you know, I think it's really important that we take notice of the words of Jesus here. Only the Father knows the time and the date. We're not meant to actually, I think, spend time looking for when it's going to happen, but we are told to look for the signs, and we are told to be ready. And that's really my message this morning about being 
ready. Now, I was asked only recently, why does the Bible say he's coming soon? 2,000 years isn't exactly soon. Well, I'll give you my answer I gave to that person. First of all, Peter tells us that a thousand years in God's, a thousand years is but a day in God's eyes. Um, again, the whole spectrum of time and eternity, 2,000 years is nothing to God. Now what the Bible calls the last days really began at Pentecost, when God poured out his spirit, which we've just been reading about, and the church was born. Okay, so that's when the last days really began. We've been living in the last days for 2,000 years. Um, but Peter carries on to give us a second reason, I think, why um, it hasn't happened yet. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. In other words, God's giving time for people to come to repentance. In fact, Peter goes on to say, um, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. So God's being kind in waiting. And that's what the, um, the parable of the ten bridesmaids, or the ten virgins, whichever version you read, was all about. The, the bridegroom seemed very slow in coming. They'd fallen asleep. Some of them, their oil had ran out. And they couldn't get any more. And what, he, what he's saying is, you know, keep your lamps burning. Be ready. He is coming. He may seem slow in coming, but he is coming. It's nearer now than the time when you first believed. Scripture says that. It's nearer now than it was yesterday. He is coming, you know. But I think there's yet another reason why Jesus uses that word soon, and that is God wants us ready. He wants us alert. He doesn't want us falling asleep like, like those bridesmaids. Now, this is what Jesus says in Luke 21. Be careful not to spend your time feasting, drinking, or worrying about worldly things. If you do, that day might come on you suddenly like a trap on all people on earth. So be ready all the time. Again, put it in red. Be ready all the time. Pray that you'll be strong enough to escape all these things that will happen and that you will be able to stand before the Son of Man. Now, I quite like the way the message version puts that bit. Don't fall asleep at the wheel, which is something politicians are often accused of. But anyway, so we need to be ready because Jesus is coming back. Now, much of the prophetic, and I believe this, much of the prophetic in the Bible has been fulfilled. Yeah? Everything that the Bible promises about the coming back of Jesus, so much of it has been fulfilled. But I think there's a tiny little smidgen yet to go. That, that, that's my belief. Now, I know many um, leaders and Bible teachers are getting excited because they feel that God has yet to fulfill in its completeness the prophetic in Scripture about an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, we know we saw the beginning of it at Pentecost, but I know so many people believe there is so much more to that fulfilment that is yet to come and greater than anything we've seen yet. And many respected men of God has prophesied a new outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Hudson Taylor saw it in the vision. Smith Wigglesworth prophesied it. Habakkuk tells us that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Hasn't happened yet, has it? But it will. 
I really believe that because that's what Scripture tells us. And Joel tells us in his prophetic about the outpouring of the Spirit, he says, before the day of the Lord comes, that great and terrible day, God will pour out his Spirit on all flesh. That has yet to come, I really believe. As I said, it started at Pentecost, but with so much prophetic in the Bible, you often see a partial fulfilment, but then you get a much greater fulfilment. And I believe this is one of those. There is a greater fulfilment of that scripture yet to come. Now, I'm not making any predictions and the time scale. It's completely up to the Father. It's not up to us at all. But I do sense there is this call on the church to make ourselves ready. Even if I'm totally wrong on all the bit I've just been talking about, there's still the call in Scripture, make yourselves ready. And the subject that I really brought here this morning is holiness. Holiness. And I do feel there's a new call on the church towards holiness because holiness is part of the process of making yourselves Ready. Now, it's not a new call. It's always been there, that call on the church to holiness. But I do believe it's being renewed and it is being intensified. And I find it interesting that in so many parables and in the letters of um, Paul, Peter, when holiness is mentioned, it is so often in the context of the return of Jesus. And I've only just cottoned on to this one, actually. It's a bit of a new revelation to me. When holiness is mentioned, it's always about getting ready for that day that is coming. It seems to go hand in hand. Now, I just want to try and explain to you why I feel the call to holiness is being intensified. Now, how many of us have been involved in a wedding? <laughs> um, we've had two daughters, so, you know, we sort of know all about... Uh, um, getting the preparations right, and you know, it starts months beforehand, doesn't it? You know, dresses, flowers, venue, and even on the day, there's the hairdresser arrives and the makeup has to be right, and um, yeah, um, you, can, you know, all the stuff that goes into making a wedding, and that's all for a very good reason, and that is the bride wants to look her best. And it's not just for the photos and the guests, she wants to look her best for the bridegroom. And as she walks through the door and the music plays, she wants the bridegroom to turn around and go, wow, I made the right choice. I did that. I remember going, wow. I still go, wow, sometimes. Anyway, that's another matter. But picture this. The door of the church opens and in walks the bride with hair unkempt all over the place, no makeup, dress torn, creased, hasn't been ironed, stained, and the bridegroom will be thinking, what am I doing? Making the biggest mistake of my life. Now, church, we are the bride. We are the bride. Father God wants a bride that is fit for his son. And I do believe that's what God is doing us, doing with us at the moment. He's making us a bride that is fit for his son. He doesn't want a bride that's dressed in filthy rags. In fact, scripture talks about being dressed in white robes. And this is John's account in Revelation. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! 
for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And then it talks about the fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. That's us. That is us, and I really do believe the time has come for the bride to make herself ready because the bridegroom is coming. Now Peter writes this in his first letter. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Now, can you see that double theme there again? Holiness linked to Christ's return. And it was obviously something that was dear to Peter's heart, because he keeps coming back to it. I mean, he was there, wasn't he, when Jesus gave the promise. So I think it was burnt on his mind. And he makes it a key theme in both his letters. Look what he says in 2 Peter. What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Now here's an interesting thought for you. Can we really speed his coming? That's an interesting one, isn't it? Is it the sooner we get ready as church and live in holiness, the sooner Jesus will return? I'll leave you thinking about that one. Um, so what, what do we mean when we talk about holiness? Well, first of all, it's not the same as righteousness. That's really important that we get hold of that one. Because, can I just reaffirm to you, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are already made righteous. It's a gift. You have been made righteous. Righteousness is something that was imparted to you at the cross when Jesus died. All our sin, past present and even future was laid on him and some call it the great transaction of the cross he that had no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God the way to the heavenly throne room is open because you are righteous righteousness is a gift you can't earn it you don't deserve it you can't work for it you just accept it and that isn't, isn't that amazing? And you know, once we accept that, we become righteous. We are no longer sinners. The Bible tells us that. We've gone from being sinners, being slaves to sin. We have become saints. We may be saints who sometimes sin, and that's a lot different to being a sinner. So when the Father looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus over your life, and he is satisfied. He sees that robe of righteousness that Jesus won for you. He's satisfied. You may enter into his presence. Direct access to the Father. Now that to me is an absolutely amazing truth. But holiness is not the same as righteousness. Let's see what Paul says. That scripture there, you've been, this is what Paul says, you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as righteousness, as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. Can you see that? Righteousness leading to holiness. In other words, holiness is a journey. 
Holiness, or to use educational jargon, is something we are working towards. Now, if we want a bit more clarity, let me just put up the, um, the amplified version, which says, so now offer your members your abilities, your talents as, as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. That is being set apart for God's purpose. So we've got two concepts here. We have the idea of being set apart. You are set apart for a purpose. You are no longer your own. You have been set apart for God's purpose, no longer your own purpose. So you're set apart for him. And then we have that word sanctification. And the dictionary defines that one as the action of making something holy, the action or process. You see, journey, the process of being freed from sin or purified. So now we mention that word sin. And that's something, again, we don't always want to speak about. Um, but as Christians, it is really important that we do, because we have to recognise that that's what took Jesus to the cross. It was for our sins that he went to the cross. Now, all, I don't intend to sort of have a big discussion on sin, but all I want to say is, if you are a follower of Jesus, I really believe that you will know deep down, oh sorry, you will know deep down if um, a course of action or a pattern of behaviour, a way of thinking is likely to be sinful because I believe you have the Holy Spirit within you and he will make it very clear to you. And I know from my past experience, if I've slipped up, if I've slipped into sin, if I've slipped into wrong thinking, wrong attitudes, the Holy Spirit makes me feel very uncomfortable. My peace is disturbed. Um, and I do believe the Holy Spirit will disturb our peace when we embark on that slippery slope that leads us into sinful behaviour. Now there's a word in Hebrew for peace, and that word is shalom. And it's one of my favourite words. Now, it means so much more than peace. It does mean peace, but it also means well-being. It means healing. It means harmony. It means wholeness. It means welfare. It means completeness. In other words, I define it as everything that God wants for you. Yeah? God wants shalom over your life. And it's a word that's so rich and deep in meaning. And the problem is that sin disrupts shalom. And that's one of my definitions of sin that I tend to use. Anything that disrupts shalom. So sin can disrupt shalom in others. If I'm unkind, if I pull somebody down, if I demean them, or more extremely, if I abuse them, if I oppress them, I will actually affect their shalom. But sin will also disrupt my own personal shalom, my own peace. Why is that? Because sin leads to death. And the Bible is very clear on that one. So what James says. Temptation comes from our own desires which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. And one translation puts it this way, when sin is fully mature, it can murder you. So here's a question for you. Why does God hate sin so much? 
Now, we can all have this idea of the headmaster in the sky kind of figure, or head teacher, we all say nowadays, I suppose, um, you know, looking down on us, very cross with us if we do the slightest misdemeanor. And I certainly have grown up a lot with that kind of image of God. But do you know what? That is so not my Heavenly Father. It's not the sinner that God hates, it's the sin. And the reason why God hates sin so much is really, really simple. It's because he loves you. And sin damages you. Sin is like poison. You know, it, it's a bit like the apple to Sleeping Beauty. It's a bit like Kryptonite to Superman. You know, it, it poisons you. It damages you. That's why God hates it so much. That's why he wants you to be absolutely ruthless in dealing with it. And this is what... Jesus said, the thief comes only in order to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have and enjoy life and have it in abundance to the full till it overflows. That's what God wants for you. That's what Jesus wants for you. And the journey to holiness is also the journey to abundant life. Do you realise that? The journey to holiness is the journey to abundant life. And this is how I see it. I've even done a little graph for you, look. When we actually commit to that process of sanctification, it leads to abundant life. And with Jesus, the trajectory is always upwards. With Jesus, it's always being changed for the better, from glory into glory. That's what Jesus wants for you abundant life till it overflows so we often say you know jesus accepts you just as you are but he loves you too much to leave you that way he wants that transformation because that's how you get that abundant life but sadly sin has the opposite effect sin always leads to abundant death and that's why Jesus teaches on it. And he tells us, you know, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your um, left hand leads you into sin, cut it off. Now, that seems a bit heavy, doesn't it? Now, he's not teaching self-mutilation. Can we just be clear there? He wants the best for you. What he's saying is, be absolutely ruthless with sin. Don't let it poison you. So, now we come to the practicalities. And it's always good to think, yes, but how? How do I deal with sin? Now, let's be absolutely real. Your sign, by the way. We, we do real. Okay? And uh, one of the things I think we have a problem with in church is the people who pretend they've got it all sorted, which makes the people who haven't really uncomfortable and don't feel a part of it. <clears throat> I think the worst thing we can do in church is put on a good face and pretend we have it sorted. We haven't. Everybody has their struggles. I have my struggles, you have yours. Let's be real about it. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews talks about their struggle against sin, or as the message puts it, this all-out battle against sin. It's a struggle we all have. So, how do we deal with it? Well, a good place to always start is the Bible, isn't it? And the Bible gives us some great advice. This is one of my favourites. Paul tells us to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. And I have tried to train myself to recognise thoughts that are not God thoughts. Whether it's that someone has done something that's hurt me or caused me 
harm or pain or whatever, if my thoughts begin to wander, as they used to, about how can I get even, how can I sort him out, how can I get my own back, they're not God thoughts. And I have to take those and I have to make them obedient to Christ. Or if it's these um, pictures that can pop up online, um, you know, our male, scant, scantily clad women or whatever, or these uh, inappropriate videos that can pop up my Facebook feed that can actually start my thoughts lingering where they didn't ought to be. I want to actually say, no, those are not God thoughts. And I need to make them obedient to Christ. But, you know, there's so many things that the enemy can use to get our thoughts wandering off in the wrong direction. <clears throat> Excuse me. And when that happens, I've, made, I've asked the Holy Spirit to make me feel so uncomfortable. I just have to get it sorted. Take that thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Because in the thoughts, that's where sin starts. That's where it's given birth to. And we mustn't give it headroom. Next, the Bible tells us, fill your mind with good things. If you take something out, don't leave a vacuum, put something even better back in. And uh, the, Paul tells us, fill our minds with these kinds of things. Whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is worthy of respect, whatever is right and confirmed by God's word, whatever is pure and wholesome, whatever is lovely and brings Peace, there's that word again. If it brings you peace, it's good, it's wholesome, whatever is admirable and of good repute. Think on these things. And the Amplified Version says, centre your mind on them, implant them in your heart. There's so much rubbish out there, isn't there? So much rubbish that we can get distracted by. And I believe the enemy makes sure there is a lot of rubbish that we can get distracted by. So that, um, that leads me on to another point. Now, whether your battle is against addiction, habits, behavioural issues, lust, or whatever you struggle with, the important thing to remember is you are not alone. You're not, someone has been there before, and someone is probably right there now. You're not alone in this struggle against sin. Now, someone said to me just recently, I think I have an addictive personality. And my answer was, I think we all have. I honestly do. I think we are hardwired to addiction. Now, the addictions might be different, but we all have a tendency to addiction. And the reason why I think God has hardwired us towards addiction is because we're meant to be addicted to Jesus. That's where we're meant to find the answer to everything. And that's where we're meant to find our fullness. You know, it's Jesus. That's what we're meant to focus on. But sadly, so many people don't reach out to Jesus to fill that God-shaped hole in their life. We often talk about that, don't we? You do have a God or a Jesus-shaped hole. But so many people reach out to all the other stuff to fill the void. It never does. It never does. And that's the nature of sin. Once it gets hold of us, it just wants more and it takes, it, it takes us down a road that we really don't want to go down. Here's a quote for you. Sin will take you further than you ever expected to go. It will keep you longer than you ever intended to stay. And it will cost you more than you ever expected to pay. I don't know who said it first. It's been attributed to a lot of people. But the truth is in there, isn't it? So remember, you're not 
alone. If you need to reach out to somebody else to help you, remember, prayer is really important in this. Someone you trust, someone you can be accountable to, that's really important in this battle against sin. You're not alone. So, I, I don't actually think we're meant to fight the battle alone, to be perfectly honest. Um, we, can, we can try doing it on our own, but, you know, we can actually say, I'm never going to do that sin again, and we can really, really mean it. And we manage it for about eight hours, and then we wake up. And then, you know, the first thing you think, I'm not going to do that sin today. What's the first thing you thought about? That sin that you really don't want to. So there has to be a better way, doesn't there? And also, just remember, you're not alone because you have Jesus. You have Jesus within you. And I think one thing that sin makes us want to do is to hide from Jesus. And I know when I've got things wrong in the past, the one thing I don't want to do is go to church. The one thing I don't want to do is to be near, near other Christians. And, you know, that's been like that ever since the Garden of Eden. What did the man and the woman do when they first sinned? They hid. What did God do? Come looking. And he still comes looking. So, if you are a believer, you have the Spirit of Jesus within you. And one of the things, again, I've tried to make myself do is if I'm struggling with something, is to say, Jesus, we have a problem. You do it together with Jesus. Jesus, we have a problem. I need some help here because Jesus has promised to never leave you struggling alone. And there's some wonderful promises in Scripture over this, you know. And I just want to leave you with one from Isaiah. You will guard and keep him in perfect and constant peace whose mind, both its inclination and its character, is stayed on you because he commits himself to you, leans on you, and hopes confidently in you. Do you notice that word shalom is in there again? Peace, the Hebrew um, for that is shalom. You will be kept in perfect shalom if your mind is stayed on him. Who wants to be kept in perfect shalom? I most certainly do. So fix your thoughts on Jesus. Get addicted to Jesus. Now, there's a lady called Helen Lemel wrote a hymn back in 1918 that showed she understood this perfectly. What did she write? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dimmed in the light of his glory and grace.